Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Schieffer Series. Thanks for coming out on a rainy night in D.C. on a very slow, another slow news day in D.C. Um, we welcome you here to CSIS, the no-spin zone. Um, we're very pleased to be able to do the Schieffer Series, and it's made possible by TCU, the Horn Frogs, and it's also made, and the Schieffer College of Journalism. I'm sorry, the, the Schieffer College of Communication. Uh, and it's also made possible by the Stavros Niarchos Foundation, which has been our sponsor for this series for many years now. And without them, we would not be able to do this. Uh, and without further ado, we've got an excellent panel today. We're going to focus on Syria, but before we do that, um, you're going to hear an update on the British elections and Brexit uh, with Heather Conley. And um, without further ado, the greatest name in news, Bob Schieffer. So we're going to talk about Syria, but you know, in this, uh, what has become routine in this this uh, era of calamitous events, they happen so quickly that before we can actually get it sorted out in our mind of what about what happens, another of these events comes along and washes it away, and then we start over, and then it it happens. I mean, we're going to talk today about. Uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the uh, Turkey-Syria border, what have been the implications of that. But just stop and think how many things have happened since that happened. It now seems like it was two or three years ago. It actually was uh, October 6th that it happened. Uh, but before we do that, uh, since the uh, British election is coming up uh, day after tomorrow, right? Uh, Heather Conley, who of course, as many of you know, is our go-to person on all things in Europe. and. Uh, she has uh, going to give us a little report just to start out here uh, about what what's coming up in this Brexit election, what it means and what it means for this country and also for the folks in Britain. So, Heather, if you would just start. Well, Bob, thank you so much. Uh, Bob is such a rock star. I'm the warm-up act, and then you're going to have the main event. Um, but this is uh, CSIS breaking news. We need that cry on across the... Uh, the bottom of the screen. So Thursday is going to be a very historic election for two reasons. The outcome will likely change the economic trajectory of the United Kingdom because one candidate, the leader of the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson, wants to transform the UK economy to pull and diverge from the EU um, and to create potentially a Singapore on the Thames, he tells us. And if Labor Party Jeremy Corbyn somehow pulls off uh, and becomes the leader of a minority government, potentially, he wants to nationalize key UK industries, taking the UK back to a, an economic relationship similar to the 70s. You couldn't choose two more different economic visions. That's at stake. But perhaps the most important thing that's at stake is the actual integrity of the United Kingdom. Brexit has not only divided uh, the UK politically between those who wish to leave the EU and those who wish to remain. It's divided within the country, particularly Northern Ireland and Scotland, both voted uh, to remain in the EU in the 2016 referendum. So we think right now, the polls being what they are, the Conservatives are leading by 10 points, and that's been steady for many, many weeks. So. Probably the wind is in the conservative sails, but we don't know how much the conservatives would, could win by. They could win by a massive majority, 60, 80, even 100 seats. They could win by a very small majority, maybe just 20 seats. Um, we could see an absolute surprise. Right before registration closed, 3.5 million people registered to vote. A lot of them were young people. And so the question is, will there be turnout? Will these young people turn out? Will they vote? And then how will they vote? There's something called tactical voting, which means that um, you're not voting for the party that you want. You're actually voting for the party that will make sure the party you don't want doesn't win. It's very complicated. There's lots of websites that tell you how to do this, and we're not sure how that would work. So there's a possibility that we could see a hung parliament, uh, which would mean potentially a Labour uh, 
minority government uh, supported with other parties, which could mean, and this is what we don't know about Brexit, so if Mr. Johnson wins a majority, the UK will be leaving the EU by January 31st of next year and will likely not be able to negotiate a new trade agreement with the EU by the end of next year, which will probably be the new no-deal Brexit deadline. But if Labour wins, they will probably ask for another extension from the EU. They will renegotiate another deal, the third deal, and we will see if there's closer alignment. So stay tuned. This is a preview of a coming American attractions. Um, we are seeing social media. We're seeing Russian interference. We are seeing tactics that I would suspect we will be seeing in our own presidential election. So this is one to watch, Bob. So that, my friends, is your breaking news report. And now back to your regularly scheduled Syria discussion, which I don't want to be part of. Thank you so much. <laughs> So, back to this uh, situation along the uh, Syrian border. Uh, Seth, uh, and let me introduce everybody. That, that'd be a good thing to do here. Dr. Seth Jones, who holds hey, the uh, CSIS Harold Brown Chair, is director of our International Security Program and Cooperative Defense Project. Prior to coming to CSIS, of course, uh, he was with the RAND Corporation, served in several Defense Department posts. Melissa Dalton. Uh, who is to my immediate left, is a, a member of the congressionally mandated Syria Study Group. She's the deputy director of the CSIS International Security Program. And prior to uh, joining CSIS, she too held various uh, positions at the Defense Department. Brian Katz, down at the very end, is a CSIS fellow in international security after a decade of service in the uh, CIA and the Defense Department. And finally, our friend Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent for the uh, Wall Street Journal. Previously, she was a war correspondent in Iraq and was the Cairo bureau chief uh, for the McClatchy newspaper. So we have some people on this stage tonight who know a little about what's going on in that part of the world. Steph, uh, why don't you just start? Give us a kind of a, a picture of what the situation is there today. It was October 6th when the president announced we were pulling back. What's happened since then? Well, Bob, what the uh, U.S. has done is uh, not entirely withdrawn all of its forces. It's withdrawn forces from some areas. Uh, you know, interestingly, uh, when the U.S. withdrew from its base in Manbij, for example, uh, Russian forces moved in pretty quickly, had uh, television images, uh, including of RT inside the base with the Russian flag. So we saw a quick replacement of U.S. flags now to Russian flags in areas. U.S. also announced that it was going to start to go, uh, guard some of the oil fields in, uh, in Syria uh, to protect uh, oil for, uh, for, for Kurds. And then we have the uh, U.S. decision also to continue to keep a military presence at bases like the one in Al-Tamf along the um, uh, Iraqi-Syrian border just inside Syria. So for the moment, U.S. has uh, decreased its uh, force presence, uh, but it has not eliminated it. So uh, it's operating in some areas of the north, northeast, uh, and, then, uh, and then the south. Melissa, I, I was very interested in one of the papers you wrote uh, in the wake of this happening. You said both uh, the Obama administration and subsequent administrations have made enormous miscalculations and mistakes. Uh, so tell us a little about that and how that led to this, if in fact it did. Thanks so much, Bob. It's, it's great to join you this evening, as well as this distinguished panel. Um, I think what we've seen over the course of both the Obama and the Trump administrations is a, a failure to see uh, and recognize the scope of the Syria challenge and the strategic interests that the United States has in play in Syria. Um, both administrations have chosen to focus almost exclusively on the counterterrorism object objective, which is, of course, very important for, for U.S. interests, whether you're considering ISIS and its affiliates and its, its growth in the region or al-Qaeda affiliates that continue to operate in, in Syria. Um, but, but really, this is part of a larger story of intersecting conflicts in the region, but also those that are anchored to, to Syria itself. And when considering U.S. interests that remain, um, despite uh, this, this very narrowly scoped strategy, 
whether it's strategic com competition with Russia and the gains that they've made over the last few years following their intervention in 2015 um, and the inroads that they've now made into northeastern Syria with the U.S. withdrawal from that area, whether it's strategic competition with Iran um, and how it's continuing to build out its militia presence, its missiles in places like Syria and how that connects to its broader region regional strategy. And, and then the impact on, on our neighbors, or Syria's neighbors, which are U.S. key regional partners, whether that's Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, of course our NATO ally, Turkey, uh, to, to the north, uh, whose interests in Syria we severely underestimated in their opposition to uh, the Kurdish element of the, the Syrian Democratic Forces that the U.S. chose to partner with in its counterterrorism operation. So really across the board, there's been a misalignment of these strategic objectives and the, both the Obama administration and Trump administration's approach in Syria. Nancy Youssef, you've been covering this story for a while, all the way back to Iraq. You were the bureau chief for McClatchy in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, are we there or have we withdrawn? I mean, we have the story about we were withdrawing. We saw all the pictures on television of the Russians coming in and the Americans. And then the next thing you know, we read we're sending more people back to the region. Where, where exactly are we? So it's that? a great question. Um, You'll remember in October the U.S. announced that it was withdrawing all its forces and that all those forces would be moving into Iraq. And then as soon as the U.S. said it, the Iraqis said, they're not staying here. And the U.S. said it was going to um, transit them in some way. And then we heard this announcement about somewhere between five and 600 troops that would be there to guard oil fields. And subsequently, we've heard about a return of missions that are countering ISIS or targeting um, ISIS leaders. I think the way to think about it is the U.S. withdrew in the sense that it's no longer the buffer that protected the Kurds along the border and uh, allowed um, its Kurdish partners to sort of focus on the counter-ISIS fight. Um, they were there to buffer a Turkish incursion in, and of course, as soon as they left, we saw the Turks enter. But the U.S. counter-ISIS campaign has continued, I think, less as a ground mission or as a training mission alongside Kurdish partners, but more through airstrikes and targeted missions through special operations and, and other specialized forces. And Brian, uh, down at the end, uh, what do you, who, who is gained and who's lost here? Uh, and does that really matter right now? Yeah. Well, I think ultimately who will gain is ISIS and other extremist groups in Syria. But we can come back to that. I think in the immediate term, you know, who gains? We look to Russia. Um, as colleagues here mentioned, with the U.S. withdrawal from a couple of key posts in northeast Syria, places like Mambij, uh, places like Kobani, some of the key flashpoints where the U.S. actually got involved in Syria in the first place for the fight against ISIS, you've seen Russia be able to move in. We now see Russia with Turkey conducting joint patrols in northern Syria, where it used to be the US and Turkey conducting those as part of these confidence building mechanisms because of our relationship with the SDF. You see Russia enjoying the benefits of the sort of solidification of the Assad regime's control in western Syria, which despite the continuing fighting in places like Idlib province against the opposition, um, there's really no direct threat to, to the regime anymore. So Russia has more or less secured its interests and then with the U.S. withdrawal creates an opening for continued influence in Syria and to exploit some of our eroding partnerships in the region, particularly with Turkey, a NATO ally. Not a coincidence that that is among the key partners that Russia is trying to pick off first from this. But going back to you know, who ultimately benefits you know, you could look at the Assad regime, Russia, Iran and Hezbollah and their efforts. Those have sort of continued on more or less the last few years without a direct impact from the U.S. presence. But I think our big concern going forward is what this means for ISIS, right? Syria is not one war, it's multiple wars that are all overlapping. But for none of those combatants is ISIS their primary enemy. It was really the United States and the SDF where that was true. Assad's focused on the opposition. Iran and Hezbollah, while supporting Assad, are focused on a co potential conflict with Israel. Uh, and Russia is kind of supporting all of those objectives. Who is going to be left to fight ISIS? 
we have this enduring presence now of about five to 600 US troops, it's gonna get more and more difficult as that presence is being squeezed by Russian, Iranian regime encroachment while ISIS is dispersing and now out in these very difficult to reach urban area, rural areas. This is what the US mission was intended to be, to train the SDF to continue this difficult phase of the campaign against ISIS out of places like Raqqa and into the desert and mountains. And now we see no indications of, of, the, of the regime, of Russia or Iran being willing to do that difficult fighting, which is gonna give space for ISIS to regroup. Well, I guess when we were talking about winners and losers, we, we can say there was one definite loser, that was Baghdadi. Uh, he's not there anymore. Uh, but, Melissa, is ISIS dead? No, uh, far from it. Um, I think what we're seeing grow, growing evidence of is uh, the ability of ISIS cells uh, to regenerate through an insurgent network. Um, the intelligence linkages to local communities, the financial networks are still act active across the Syrian-Iraqi border. Um, and given the, the lack of uh, an international strategy to provide the Syrian people, who are the real losers in this equation, yeah. unfortunately, and quite yeah. tragically given everything that they've been through, um, the lack of a comprehensive approach to provide an alternative governance model in Syria is really the biggest win for ISIS. Uh, because it's in that vacuum, um, that lack of alternatives, that groups like ISIS can thrive. Um, and essentially, Assad is, is able to prevail in this environment, backed by Russia and Iran, um, and that only feeds the narrative of extremist groups like ISIS and helps with their recruitment. Yeah, I'm just gonna add to Melissa's comments. I mean, I think it's important to get your hands on rough estimates. Uh, a range of Western governments assess significant numbers of both Islamic State and Al-Qaeda-linked fighters in Iraq and Syria. If you look at, at uh, Syria to start with, if you include those currently in uh, detention, including at places like Al-Hal, about 15,000 or so Islamic State fighters in Iraq, add, a number, add another 8,000 or so in, in Iraq, so 15,000 or so in Syria, another 8,000 in Iraq. Uh, when you add in the Al-Qaeda, linked groups, the Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and the Tanzim Haras al-Din in the Idlib area, those are you know, probably another 8,000 or so. So we're talking about over 30,000 um, either Islamic State or Al-Qaeda-linked fighters still in Iraq and Syria. And in, in, as Melissa said, even with the Islamic State, we see smaller cell structures in Asawaida down in the south, in the volcanic areas, in the Badia Desert, uh, switched from controlling territory to conducting guerrilla attacks, uh, small-scale guerrilla attacks. So they're not, what, what we don't see is large-scale control of territory, but we see significant numbers. They don't fly the, um, uh, the uh, Islamic State flags anymore. Some of them are, have been dressed in Bedouin, uh, Bedouin dress. Uh, so more difficult to uh, identify, including with satellite imagery. So they've played a little bit more of uh, a careful role in, in how visible they are, but they're there. And I think, you know, the, the more the time goes by and the more we attempt to fool ourselves that we've won, I think the more likely we'll see a resurgence because just to pick up on one last point that Brian mentioned earlier, you know, Russian forces in the south, they're not conducting sustained operations against Islamic State in any of the areas I just talked about, nor is the Syrian regime, which means for the moment the gas pedal has come off them. You know, it's funny, in 2010 and 11, I remember writing stories about Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was the precipitating group in ISIS being just a few hundred and sort of down and out. And, and within two years, in 2013, we started to see the resurrection of this group called the Islamic State and the attempt at building a caliphate, which was sort of an inconceivable idea for Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So when Seth is talking about thousands, you know, a few years ago, we were talking about a group that was just a few hundred to give you a sense of how quickly um, the situation can change. And I think it's why you're sort of hearing a nervousness between, uh, among people about the potential for the Islamic State to return, given what happened leading up to it. In addition, you have an Islamic State operation in Afghanistan that's quite um, enduring. You've seen it expand through India, Pakistan, the, the sands, into Asia, into Egypt, into Africa. and so. When we think about the Islamic State and its ability to sort of return, 
um, even though I, can't, I don't have the imagination to tell you how it returned, there are lots of ways and, and in lots of parts of the earth that it can try to sort of rebuild itself. Brian, what is our strategy now? What is it? <laughs> what is it we're trying? Yeah, Brian, to do? what is our strategy? Yeah. <laughs> so, to, to the best one can discern, um, as Melissa said, it has been consistent now for two administrations that the primary objective of the United States in Syria is to degrade the threat from international terrorism. While there were efforts uh, to involve ourselves in the Syrian civil war to facilitate President Bashar al-Assad's uh, transition from power, um, we still have high-level diplomatic engagement to facilitate some type of political settlement to the conflict. All previous efforts have failed, and they're really not going anywhere. Um, there's been discussion of trying to counter Iran and Hezbollah's presence in the country because of the threat that it poses to Israel. More or less, the U.S. hasn't done anything um, pertaining to that. Israel has more, more or less taken action into its own hands to deal with, with the threat emanating from Syria. So really, the, the last U.S. concern and the one that we're willing to direct American force towards is the threat from ISIS and, to a lesser extent, Al-Qaeda. So while strategy is you know, traditionally something driven by overarching political objectives for a country, we don't really have any. Our objective is still a military one, which is the defeat of a terrorist group. So going forward, I would expect to see the focus of US effort remain, how do we keep a presence in Syria and how do we keep a presence in the region working with our regional partners to maintain that type of persistent pressure on an ISIS and Al-Qaeda that are learning adaptive organizations. What we learned, as Nancy mentioned from the experience with AQI, is that these organizations will adapt. And if you don't adapt to them, they're gonna gain the upper hand. But that's an incredibly intensive load. It requires persistent intelligence capabilities to understand how these groups are operating. And then it takes military forces to be able to take action against those groups when they're, when they're gathering steam again. So I think what we'll see is if the US maintains this five to 600 force presence with a few key bases in Northeast Syria and in Southern Syria along the Jordanian border, We'll see efforts for the United States to try to continue to work by, with, and through local partners, the SDF still being the main one to, to counter ISIS, and then the US and global coalition partners to conduct strikes against ISIS when there's intelligence. But the challenge we'll have is the SDF. They now, because of our withdrawal, feel compelled to have to collaborate or cooperate directly with the Russians and the regime against Turkey. So we will be now dealing with a partner who has been our by, with, and through force, who is also working and maybe having worked by, with, and through by our geopolitical rivals in the country. Did this do anything, Seth, to our credibility throughout the region, this sort of surprise withdrawal that we announced? Yeah, I, I think the biggest challenge to American credibility is how this was done, or at least one, one of the major ones. And, and you know, Brian and I were the region talking to a number of uh, folks, and one of the things that struck me from government officials in the region was how, uh, was not just the withdrawal, but how it was done. They found out on social media, not through government channels. And so the, the challenge is, um, uh, you know, how, how is our strategy decided, how is it then communicated across government agencies in the United States, and then how is it communicated to our partners in the region, both governments and then with the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, non-state actors? And I think we, we've had challenges in making decisions and communicating them effectively. And why that's a problem is because I think what it forces uh, other governments in the region to do is you've, I mean, you need, you need some consistency. It looks like for the foreseeable future, the Russians are going to be in the region. They have power projection capabilities at Tartus, at Latakia. And so if you're gonna err with one major great power in the region, 
you're going to go with the Russians. And, and two interesting points along these lines. One is the Israelis have developed a relatively effective relationship with the Russians. They deconflict on the Israeli strikes in Syria. And then the Jordanians have done the same thing. Reasonable relations in, a, in addition to the Lebanese and the Turks who are buying Russian missiles now. So, uh, w you know, the, the Russians have in many ways replaced us as a major country in the region because they are now viewed as more reliable, more permanent, and long-term. And that is a stunning development from a few years ago when our national defense strategy says that they are strategic competitors. So, uh, Melissa, uh, one thing we haven't talked about is the humanitarian side of this. Uh, where, where, where is the region on that? I mean, I, I would assume that we'd have to say that Assad is probably more in charge than he was, uh, but what he's in charge of is a huge disaster. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the humanitarian toll in, in Syria is deeply profound. Um, millions displaced, uh, millions of refugees flowing into to Europe and the surrounding region, um, over half a million, probably more, killed over the course of, of the conflict. Um, you layer on top of that uh, the system of intelligence and security apparatus that uh, detains, imprisons, and tortures uh, Syrians, um, and particularly as territory is reoccupied, um, how predatory that, that model can be. Um, and there's been plenty of uh, expedition in the media um, as to the atrocities of, of this system. So I think it's incumbent upon the international community, uh, given the serious missteps and misalignment that we've talked about, um, to think about how we can invest in justice and accountability uh, for, for what has been committed in Syria. Of this week, working through Congress is the Caesar Bill um, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act um, that is gonna put in place on Syria unprecedented sanctions layered on top of the sanctions that already exist um, that's gonna circumvent international investment in Syria. However, with this, and I should note that, that the spirit and intent behind Caesar is for accountability. Um, uh, Caesar was a, um, somebody who, it's his code name or his pseudonym, was somebody who was actually tortured in the Assad regime, but smuggled out uh, documentation of the atrocities that had been committed. Um, and so there's been a campaign over a number of years to um, seek uh, some um, recognition of these atrocities and, and next steps and sanctions from um, the international community. So the fact that this is moving forward, I think, is positive if you value that justice and accountability objective. The downside is that, um, you know, where does this leave the, the Syrian people and the reconstruction and humanitarian toll in, in Syria? Um, when there are such diminishing options for the United States and its allies in terms of how we've extricated ourselves from Syria and diminished our leverage. Um, where does that leave the, the Syrian people if we're gonna crowd out the possibilities for reconstruction? And so it's, it's a significant dilemma for the United States uh, and its allies to think about how to balance um, that humanitarian objective with these justice and accountability mechanisms that, that are absolutely necessary uh, you know, to, to right set not only the atrocities in, in Syria, but also um, and the, the acceptability of, of other uh, you know, atrocities being able to be replicated in other conflicts going forward. Seth, what are the steps we ought to be taking right now? What are we doing that's good, and what are the things we should not be doing on this? Well, I, I think the broader question is uh, to make it clear, both within the government and externally, what, what are our political objectives, long-term political objectives in the region, and what are the primary instruments of power, um, military, information, diplomatic, development, uh, to help achieve those objectives with our partners in the region. And so I think, you know, you know there, there, there are a combination of counterterrorism objectives that we've already outlined, that there needs to be a continuing uh, presence and pressure on Islamic State and Al-Qaeda groups in the region. So I, I think it, what that suggests is the U.S. needs 
um, not just a military posture, probably talking more about special operations forces and intelligence units to keep pressure, work with partners in the region to provide training assistance um, and advice to them, but also working other aspects of this. I mean, diplomatic uh, component. When, when Nancy brings up the broader issues of uh, Islamic State activity and Al-Qaeda activity in other regions, you know, there's a strong need for diplomatic engagement in Libya because we've got not one government, but several. Same thing in Yemen, diplomatic engagement to try to end some of these wars that are breeding grounds for, uh, for militant groups. I think in addition, we do have to think also about objectives in containing Iranian expansion and also to some degree containing Russian expansion. So I do think this requires some U.S presence and activity across all those instruments with key partners in the region, but it has to hinge on what are our long-term objectives in the region. And to me, they're not really clearly identified at this point. Nancy, what if we just truly pulled out? What if the United States were no longer a player? In, in, in Syria? I'm just, just Syria? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I mean, well, let me just start by saying, you know, the U.S. objectives that it's wanted in Syria, they, it, as we've talked about, they've sort of relinquished, right? The U.S. has started out by saying Bashar al-Assad cannot stay. And the reality is it appears he's going to stay. It said that Russia couldn't sort of become an influential or competitor in the region. And that's happened. And I, I should point out, I think there's an argument to be made that it's not that Moscow seeks to end these wars, but on the contrary, to keep them going to maintain its level of influence and, and, and have as many people dependent on them as possible. U.S. said it did want an expanded Iranian presence um, in, in, in Syria, and we've seen that as well. So I think the short answer is if you see the U.S. completely withdraw from Syria, at the minimum you're going to see, and we've started to see this, real atrocities committed against the Kurds, and tens of thousands of suspected ISIS fighters and their families not guarded because the minute the Kurds can't protect themselves, they cannot protect those that they're guarding in those facilities. And I think broadly speaking, you, you lose years of um, intelligence and partnerships and understanding of the region to sort of spot these problems going forward. I think, you know, some people would point to the U.S. withdrawal of an Iraq as sort of a warning of what happens when you just leave. I think the challenge is you're doing this um, in a much more complex environment. That all said, I understand why there's such an exhaustion with sort of open-ended conflicts where there doesn't seem to be a clear um, withdrawal. So it's an understandable frustration that you hear from the public when we're talking about um, open-ended conflicts for in some cases, decades. And so um, I think the calculation is, is there, is there a long-term cost for a potential short-term gain or seeming benefit of, of, of ending wars? And, and, if, and if you do withdraw, can you do it in such a way where you have partners on the ground that can maintain some sort of pressure um, on the Islamic State? All right, well, let's go to the audience and uh, see if you all have some questions on this very complicated subject here. Way in the back. And hold the microphone up close because the acoustics, it's very difficult. Yeah, it just to seems to me, there. I mean, how many years have we been in all these countries and everyone we've been into has been destabilized? We've got ISIS sprouting up. You got, I, I didn't even realize that they were in um, Afghanistan, but they're in, in Iraq, they're in Libya, um, and, and now they're trying to destroy Syria. I, what is the end game here, and who's benefiting from this? Someone's making money off of this. I'll ask the panel. I, I, know, I was unable to hear any of that. It's just an AIDS thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, so it's basically the question. It seems like wherever we've intervened, things have gotten worse. Um, and, you know, ISIS has proliferated to multiple countries to include Af Afghanistan. I'll, I'll start in, in answer, and please feel free to jump in, fellow panelists. Um, you know, I think it's a question of the balance of, of the tools that we bring to these equations. Um, I think there has been a heavy reliance over the last 20 years on the military instrument, um, which is highly effective but limited 
um, in terms of achieving some of the types of objectives that we've set out for ourselves in, in the region. So it gets back again to this, this misalignment of what are our strategic aims as stated, whether it's for a region or for a country, and then what sort of tools are we not only bringing to bear, but resourcing. I think when you take a step back and look at this region and, and the problems um, that are resident in them and what ISIS is an expression of is poor governance. And so what are the tools that you need uh, to enable local partners to redefine their political dynamics in a way that answers the expressions of, let's say, the Lebanese who are protesting across confessional lines in, in Lebanon or in Iraq, um, protesting against the, the Iranian consulate in, in Karbala, which you know, it would, be, would have been unheard of several years ago. These are governance questions. And so what tools can the US bring to bear in a credible way to, to give people in the region the tools that they need to, to redefine their environment? And that will then circumvent the ability of extremist groups like ISIS, like Al Qaeda to, to take hold. Um, okay. I just here. wanted to add real quickly, because uh, I think you made such a great point in terms of is the U.S. presence sort of causing problems that are facilitated. I think the one area in my reporting where, I, where you see that the most is civilian casualties. The way that ISIS was moved out of Mosul and Raqqa was through, the, frankly, the destruction of these cities. And I think while the U.S. makes great efforts to avoid civilian casualties, I think when they happen, it, it exponentially re raises the possibility of creating another future insurgent. I mean, so I think that when, when Melissa talks about the limitations of the military component, I think one of those is that dependency on it to sort of take on a problem once it becomes a crisis is the wholesale destruction of communities and potentially creating new um, um, members of these groups going forward. Seth, yeah, yeah I'm just going to uh, push back a little bit to uh, the argument that um, you know U.S. actions are at the core of much of what we're seeing. I think you know the interesting development is you see the numbers of both jihadist groups and of fighters, Salafi jihadist fighters, uh, increase dramatically. So we've 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 mapped the numbers, put a database together. The biggest jumps are 2011, 12, 13, 14. This is when the slope of the curve starts to increase dramatically. And when you look at where these are going on, they're actually a, a st like structural conditions, events like the Arab Spring, which is weakening governments. And uh, you, know, you had large protest movements in Egypt, and we had additional protest movements in Yemen. We had the protest movements that started Syria and triggering uh, wars. Uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq takes advantage of the Syrian uprisings and pushes fighters in, including Mohammed Jalani. So there's a lot happening in addition to external powers getting involved in these cases. There are also lots of structural conditions. And which, which brings me to this final point, Bob, that we've got protest movements in Lebanon right now, in Iraq still. We've seen the end of leaders there. We've got large protest movements in Iran. We have, I mean, I'm not sure this protest movement, which has created such dramatic developments over the past seven or eight years, these may not be done, in, in which case, if we have greater instability, we go right back to the problem that Melissa just identified, weakening governments, including the security services that may provide opportunities. This is in addition to whatever the US does. All right, over here, this gentleman right here. Here comes the microphone. Right behind you. Uh, thank you for a great panel. Um, I'm curious what you see as the regime's main domestic and international goals as the country starts to transition into a, a post-conflict environment, um, particularly how it plans to interact um, with the two sort of remaining uh, countries, uh, Iran and Russia. Thank you. Who'd like to answer? I can go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so I think the Assad regime's priority, you know, first geographically is Western Syria, which is one stabilizing and sort of putting in place firmer regime control in areas that have been recaptured the last few years. So think about places like Aleppo, think about Eastern Damascus, think about places like Homs and Hama. Um, and then within that process, essentially, <coughs> 
trying to co-opt what remains of were opposition groups there um, to sort of bring them in through these reconciliation agreements. Um, but for those where there's still suspected ties to armed opposition groups or just from past behavior to use all the means that the Assad regime's uh, security and intelligence services has at their disposal. So as Melissa mentioned, um, sort of large mass imprisonments, um, the use of torture, the use of just sort of intense measures to assert your control over the population to try to ensure that there's not gonna be any other type of internal revolt ever again. Uh, so I think that's a, it's a brutal and intensive means by which they are trying to assert control. Um, in terms of internationally, I think the Assad regime is moving towards what ultimately is in Assad's head, is to try to reassert his nation's sovereignty over the rest of, of the map of Syria. So I think that's why you see this outreach to groups like the SDF, so that they can avoid having to have a battle with the SDF to regain Eastern Syria. Eastern Syria. They can, by helping advance a US withdrawal, by engaging with the SDF, start to be able to have a nominal regime presence back in these places like Deir Ezzur, Kamishli, Hasika. So slowly but surely, they can, they can reassert control. And I think working with Russia to try to check further Turkish expansion into the country in the north. Um, Turkish forces are more or less holding uh, their gains right now, um, in part uh, is because of, of Russian efforts working with both the SDF and the Turks. If, if I can also just quickly weigh in on this, because I know there's other questions. I mean, I think one of the interesting spaces to watch um, as we move into this next phase of, of the conflict in Syria is, you know, how the, the alliance between Russia and Iran and Assad shifts, um, you know, particularly as this becomes more of a political question and a competition over the spoils of war. Um, because I think, you know, Russia is vested in um, the Assad kind of model and that top-down state structures that, you know, they've supported their military for, for years. They've got those um, connections, you know, to the, the political and military apparatus. Iran is taking a different approach. I mean, they have had longstanding operational intelligence linkages um, in Syria to support their, their enterprise in, in Lebanon with Lebanese Hezbollah, um, but you know, are building not only uh, the network of, of proxies and missile facilities that, that Seth and his team um, have been exposing, but also engaged in, in a soft power campaign uh, to, to change kind of the, the um, bottom-up dynamics in Syria, um, whether that's through Husaniyas, um, you know, schools and mosques and bringing in some of that Iranian theology that I'm not convinced is necessarily gonna sit well with Russia. Uh, because it's changing the, the flavor and the composition of, of Syria. So does this, I think the strategic question is, does this present um, the US and its allies with some sort of advantage, um, you know, if that's a true cleavage? Um, and, and are there opportunities that, that reside there um, for, for the US and its allies? Right, anyone else? Right here, this gentleman right here. Thank you. I I'd like to get the, uh, the panel's reaction to what, what seems to be really sort of a sea change in opinion here. I mean, for example, you've got the Washington Post with these so-called Afghan, Afghanistan papers, supposed to be like the Pentagon Papers, and this whole, this whole uh, uh, memory of Vietnam seems to be coming back. I mean, it seems like some people knew, and we're not going to be able to win this war long before we gave up trying to do that. And, and, but, just to hitch on to somebody specific, Professor Basevich, who you must be familiar with. Now, he's written books on this, and I mean, basically that's his argument. I mean, we just, it's not gonna work, it was never gonna work, and, and we can try as hard as we want for as long as we want, and suffer as much as we want, and other people suffer as much as we want, but simply speaking, the facts are, it will never work. Now, how, how do you, and, and obviously I didn't give the argument for that, but how do you answer somebody like Professor Basevich, who obviously is a highly intelligent military person, and of course, professor at Boston University? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, it, it, 
Professor Basevich represents an important voice um, in the policy conversation that is increasingly taking hold in terms of, of exercising restraint and being a bit um, humble and, and having some humility about um, how we can particularly use our, our military to achieve our strategic aims. And this gets back to the, to the earlier conversation too about you know, being very clear about what we're trying to achieve in these different areas of the world and then the tools and resources, resourcing that we're willing to bring to bear and sustain over time requires a political commitment. And I think what, where the breakdown has occurred is that policymakers haven't had um, a transparent conversation with the American public, with the American Congress about what we're actually trying to achieve, how difficult it's going to be, and that it is gonna require a, a long-term commitment, but also having that ability to accept failures on a pathway to hopeful success, um, but also reevaluate where it is that we are going as, as, as we go. Um, and it's, it's that breakdown in, in the system that I think we've unfortunately seen play out over time. I frankly was not surprised by what we saw in the post. For anybody that's been paying attention to Afghanistan over the last 20 years, there's been plenty of uh, public expedition, uh, exposition of, of the failures and the missteps there. But you know, I think in some areas, um, some marginal success, but we haven't connected those, those broad strategic aims to, to the resourcing piece effectively. So, yeah, just briefly, I mean, you know, I've, I've been interested in the post stories. I mean, you just, Brian is in the same position I am, although different organization. I was in Afghanistan and in United States Special Operations. Um, I, I think that here's the challenge is, I think if you go back to 9-11, and, and I think this is the same challenge we faced with the Islamic State's rise in 2014 and 15 is the choice between not going or going, I think based on having a Taliban that was not willing to give up Osama bin Laden, and it was willing to harbor uh, groups that were plotting attacks overseas, when we had the Islamic State in 2014 uh, that was, if we go up to 2015, plotting attacks in Paris, for example, the, the Bataclan attacks, uh, there was a lot of external operations coming out of the Iraq-Syria border. Was the choice either not to go in at all uh, or to go in or, or to go in? It's not a z zero to one choice. I mean, part of the question is what do you do if you're going to go in to some of these countries and use instruments of power, military, intelligence, development, diplomatic, what are you going to do on the ground? And I think where we've gone, and I think this is probably the right direction, is we've shifted a lot from thinking that we can solve the problem by flooding these countries with American military forces. 100,000 plus, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, in each of them. We went over 100,000 in both. That clearly was not, in my view, the answer. I, I could have said that. I did say that at the time when I was there. Um, but I think, you know, that still doesn't get around the question, should we have been there? And, and, if, and, and I think the answer there is yes. The question is for how long and what sh should we have done it? And that answer is a little bit more difficult. The Russians are in this position in Syria, which is they're winning the war. They're not putting any resources, any meaningful resources into development and reconstruction. Will they pay a price? for not doing any of that if Syria falls apart again and it's on them. It's, it's the, um, the pottery barn rule. Now the Russians have to learn it instead of just the Americans. I'll say two quick things. One, uh, there's a rich history of the US intelligence community assessing progress or lack thereof in a conflict and US policymakers and military commanders saying something opposite. So the Afghanistan paper shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who studied the histories of Vietnam or even in real time Oh, so you can look at the differences between what was the public testimony of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence every year during this Afghan war versus the statements coming from US policy and military officials. It looks like they're talking about two wars. So this really, people who are saying now they're shocked by this, I think are being disingenuous if they're still in government. Um, but we are actually at a time where you have a consistent view for the last several years across the US intelligence community and among the military and policymakers about the threat from ISIS. Now with its uh, most likely resurgence in the coming years, exploiting this rural safe haven, 
But even going back, and, and as Seth said, this decision for U.S. intervention in the Middle East and North Africa, I think most Americans and, and global partners agree that if you have a terrorist group that is transnationally operating and trying to conduct attacks against the U.S., our Western allies, uh, and our interests in these regions, you take action. But there's a process between a group when they get to that point versus when before they first started to emerge. Most likely than not, maybe they were a rural insurgency. Then they slowly started gathering steam and started putting pressure on you know, nation's capitals. And then in that process, they're developing networks and cells across the region. And maybe that expands into Europe. Where in that process do you as the US and your global partners start to intervene? There's no good answer to that, but I think that's the type of discussion. And, and what do you do when you intervene? And what do you do and who do you do it with? Those are the types of questions I think are helpful for framing this and that need to be a conversation with the American people. You can point to 10 places right now, from the Philippines to Mali to other, other broadly that part of the Sahel in West Africa, where you have groups that fulfill some of that criteria. They've pledged allegiance to ISIS or Al-Qaeda. They're conducting regular attacks against the armies in those regions. There's, there's Western forces, the French mainly in those areas. Where is the trigger point for when it's determined to be a threat to US interests? There, there's no clean trigger point, but that I think is how you need to think about it and have uh, how policymakers need to engage the public on it. Just to be provocative, um, I think critics like Andrew Basevich, I've talked to him, but not about Syria specifically, Here's what their critics would say in terms of where the lessons of Afghanistan weren't learned in Syria. When the US partnered with the Kurdish forces, it knew from the minute it entered that it was going to reach a point where there was going to be a conflict with its NATO ally in Turkey and never addressed it. And we were, we were always you know, driving towards this conflict point, one. Two, you have a president who repeatedly signaled that he wanted out of Syria, and you've had a national security apparatus that has not been willing to put forth a plan that meets the political means as he sees it. And so again, I think those two conflicts sort of put us on a collision course towards a withdrawal. And so for those who say that the president wasn't, was reckless or in how he did it, there's a counter argument to be made that his national security team did not um, learn the lessons from Afghanistan in the sense of sort of anticipating political decisions and, and, and anticipating conflicts that come with its intervention. That is, it hadn't fully thought out the end state, the off-ramp from these interventions. All right. I think on that, uh, the one thing I know how to do, as I've said before, I know how to get off the air. Our time <laughs> Thank you all very much on behalf of TCU and TSU. Well done. That was good. Right on. Thank you.